Hello, welcome to Acamedia's podcast series, Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. I'm Miranda Banks, Associate Professor of Film, Television, and Media Studies at Loyola Marymount University, and I'll be moderating this episode on economics. We're very thankful to be part of the Acamedia podcast sponsored by SCMS and the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies. The Talking Television podcast series started this past summer under the title Talking Television in a Pandemic, inspired by the desire to explore television's role in mediating the intersecting pandemics of COVID-19 and anti-Black violence. In light of these and other ongoing crises, a new season of Talking Television started this fall. We continue to bring together media scholars and media makers to think and talk together about how both television across all its forms, from network to streaming TV, and how television studies, from work on production to texts to reception, may best speak to these peculiar and surreal times. Thus far in our latest installment of the series, we've tackled the topics of politics, and tactics. This episode will be focused on economics. We will explore changes in production practices and the business of television informed by both the global public health crisis and the crisis of racial injustice. We will also tackle broader issues concerning commodity culture and the value of television as it connects to current forms of branding and consumerism. Now, to talk about these issues, we have joining us Sarah Benet Weiser, Professor of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics. Hi, Sarah. Hi, nice to be here. Melanie Conan, Assistant Professor of Rhetoric and Media Studies at Lewis and Clark College. Hi, everyone. Al Martin, Assistant Professor of Media Studies at University of Iowa. Thank you for having me and Elisa Perrin, Associate Professor of Radio, TV, Film, and Co-Director of the Center for Entertainment and Media Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's get started. When we think about television this year and the economics of television, and I look at my bill, each month on my credit card, I am somewhat astounded by the number of different places I'm paying for media. Now, granted, there's all sorts of things I'm not paying for, uh, in particular going to the movies and things like that, concerts I miss. But I'm wondering, how have you been watching television this year? What are the spaces places or the uh, corporations that you are purchasing television through? Or is there anyone out there that's actually still using, you know, rabbit ears? So I might be an outlier. So on one hand, I am, I'm, you, I have Netflix, I have uh, Amazon Prime, and also Hulu. Um, but as a general rule, um, in this era of all the TV I've actually done not a lot of TV because the idea of choice has made me, particularly in a pandemic, I would argue, um, has made me not want to make a choice. So I haven't necessarily chosen to engage with much in the way of new content, um, with the exception of Black Monday, um, which was kind of sort of oldish when I was watching it. And then... Like, God help me, I still watch The Voice. Um, and, like, those were literally the only two things that I was watching on all of the services that I had. Anything else I was watching was all old stuff that I had seen hundreds of times already. Sarah here. Um, I think I'm kind of similar to you, Al, in my patterns. Although I will say that, like, every, like I'm sure like a lot of us, everyone says there was so much more TV watching during the pandemic. I, I went from watching, like, virtually no TV at all before the pandemic into watching a lot more. And I also did a lot of nostalgic stuff just to kind of calm my anxieties. So I watched the entire whatever, however many seasons there are of Grey's Anatomy um, during during the pandemic. And I would be like crying over, you know, people dying in Grey's Anatomy. So I wouldn't have to cry over people actually dying, you know. And so there's ways in which I kind of tailored my practices 
um, that way. I also was in, um, in lockdown in a home that did not have any TV. So it was all streaming. It was all through my computer. Um, and then when I was in um, London, um, I have very, very limited TV, so very few channels. So I would watch that mainly just to kind of get a sense of what was being, what was still being produced since I had been so out of it for so long. This is Elisa. Yeah, I would say I suffer choice fatigue as well. And then you add in the political context and the sort of obsessive, I'm going to watch the news, I'm not going to watch the news uh, mentality. I found it very hard to watch comedy, but I found solace in the Great British Baking Show. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I do think that generally speaking, my viewership has declined, although I subscribe to, I don't even want to count how many streaming services just to sample and check out their interfaces and see what they're offering, but not to actually watch them, it seems like. <laughs> this is Melanie, and I'm somebody who still has a cable subscription, and I'm usually a big like linear TV appointment TV viewer. So this year has been strange because so much TV that normally, especially would come back on in September, just didn't come on. So I've been watching a lot of old network TV. So I've, I've watched all of Person of Interest. I've watched all of Madam Secretary, which are both like seven season, 22 episodes per season shows. Uh, and I currently watch The Amazing Race, which I think is definitely due to the lack of being able to travel myself. But I've also caught up on things that were released this year and some things that are still being released on the schedule. I watch every week. So I watch The Expanse right now on Amazon Prime. I watch Star Trek Discovery on CBS All Access. And there are certain services that I subscribe to on a kind of permanent basis, like Netflix and Prime. And others I will move into my rotation when something comes on that I want to watch like CBS All Access. And what I found really interesting is the manner of where I can access these services really matters. So can I access it through my TV or can I access it through my Blu-ray player, or can I not? And for example, Disney Plus, which I also have a subscription to, I basically only use or used once a week when the Mandalorian episode dropped because I had to hook up my laptop to my television. And that was such a laborious process that I just, there was nothing else on Disney Plus that intrigued me enough to go through that process. So I think for me, it also matters, like how can I access it through which device and how convenient is it? Yeah, that was one of the things I was interested in too, which is where or how are we watching and that difference between binge watching and then kind of appointment viewing. And I was curious if you had thoughts about how different corporations or how different, you know, different companies or different producers of media are thinking about or approaching the making of television or the rollout of television differently this year, given the pandemic or given the way that things are going on. Any thoughts on that? Well, I have a thought, this is Sarah, um, as a way to kind of prep for this uh, conversation that we're having, I watched Recipe for Seduction last night, the collaboration between Kentucky Fried Chicken and Lifetime. <laughs> and it was spectacular. It has everything that you need. It's got racism. It's got, you know, classism. It has, of course, the um, black gay male sidekick who's the best friend of the heroine. Um, it has violence unexpected violence in a Kentucky Fried Chicken movie. So it had, so I, I, but I was actually thinking about like how bizarre this was and it made the rounds on social media as this joke. Everyone thought it was a joke. I actually thought it was a movie. It's a 15 minute short film, but I, I just, I thought it was kind of, I was trying to think about this movie in, in the whole context of what seems to be, and it could just be my own social media networks, what seems to be a heightened interest in like super, super cheesy um, holiday movies um, at this time. And, and it's just like they're just, you know, I, I watched A Night before Christmas, K-N-I-G-H-T. Um, it was also spectacular. Not as good as Colonel Sanders, but, you know, um, they, they're just so 
they're so awful and they're so easy to watch and they're so easy to decipher. So that's one way I think, Miranda, that I'm watching, you know, I watched The Undoing and it was, I was tense the entire time and I actually don't want to be tense right now. Right. And so I really do find myself kind of, you know, and, and, and Netflix and Hulu and, and YouTube are providing me with material so that I don't have to be tense, that I can just watch these very, very easy to digest and really, really bad um, TV. So that's one, I can see this in myself, like how I'm, I'm kind of gravitating towards a certain kind of programming to ease anxiety. Who's going to say finger licking good TV, right? (laughs) (laughs) And that actually, um, that that does remind me of the one other thing I can actually remember watching during the pandemic, which was Netflix's um, Christmas in the Square. Um, And I mean, it's literally like, at least for me, it is like gay catnip. It's like, it's um, Jennifer Lewis, it's Dolly Parton, it's Christine uh, Ever. I'm sorry, I want to say Eversaw, Bransky. That would have been catnip too. But there is a way that what I find really fascinating about this moment of in some ways this sort of peak, 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 peak TV is that so many of these, um, or I would argue at least, that so many of these uh, streaming platforms were initially sort of trying to be like, you know, quality. And we put that, of course, in scare quotes. And now what it feels like that they're doing is they're, they're in some ways becoming like networks in the sense that it's like, you know, they've got, you know, the quote unquote trashy romance slash Harlequin type movies. They've got the broad comedies. They've got the, you know, the procedurals. They've got all of this stuff. And so in some ways, you know, Netflix, Hulu in particular, um, really feel like they are these kind of weird microcosms of old networks um, because in some ways we can... Like Netflix no longer necessarily stands for quality. It is sort of everything. And I think that's kind of um, that's kind of fascinating. It'll also be fascinating to see what happens once in particular, because I would argue Netflix is still largely operating as a technology company. Um, I'll be really interested to to see what happens when and if they need to start acting like a media company where they actually have to be concerned with like subscriptions and like what money is coming in versus sort of an influx of cash that they can spend on expensive productions. I mean, I think that's been one of the interesting things with Netflix during the pandemic, right, is that the pandemic has come at a time when these streaming services, in the case of like Netflix, are maturing or else so many are launching that Netflix has to change its model. And it is. And of course, a lot of that has come with a lot of the niche shows disappearing, right? Uh, R.I.P. Glow, I weep. Uh, And so the question is, like, how how much of these so-called unrenewals, right? There was a lot of discussion about how Netflix dropped a number of shows and other, like Stumptown also on ABC and across the board, which was cited as the pandemic production costs being elevated. And of course, the pandemic becomes the catch-all excuse slash rationalization for all the things, right? And so it is going to be interesting to see how not only Netflix, but all these services evolve. And also just tied to that, like what that means in terms of peak TV. I don't know if others have thoughts about that sort of thing as well. I, I, that, yeah, I think you're hitting, um, Alisa, on a, on a great question that I was interested in getting to, um, and Al, you brought it up as well, is this question of what does this moment of a pandemic mean for peak TV? How much are things actually contracting and how much are things delayed and how much is this an excuse in some ways for certain corporations to make particular choices? And um, in order to answer that, I'm wondering if any of you have particular examples that you might think of with particular series that you think uh, a network or a studio handled well or a showrunner struggled with um, around a cancellation or a renewal that stand out to you? I have uh, a show in mind. It's not necessarily about a renewal or cancellation, but I've been tracking how television has tried to incorporate or not COVID into their narratives. 
And depending on where the show appears, so network or streaming, I think producers or writers had different choices. So network television traditionally very much aligns with the flow of linear time throughout the year. So the show starts in September and then, you know, keeps us company throughout the coming year and the seasons are aligned and so on. So I think network television never really had the choice to just not do COVID. They had to do COVID and especially because we have so many procedurals, right? But a lot of those shows incorporated into the narrative, but not necessarily into the production process. So behind the scenes, there would be safety, safety precautions. But the style and then the, the genre of the show didn't really change. And then you had a batch of shows that were made under COVID conditions, and they would incorporate it into the style of the show. So it's all the shows that were clearly filmed remotely via Zoom or it, like very self-reflexively incorporated Zoom into the style of the show. And among those, the one that I find most fascinating is Connecting on NBC, which is a sitcom that nobody watched aside from me <laughs> because it was clearly like moved to Peacock after three episodes. But I find it fascinating because it, I think, imagined itself as sort of old school network television as a cultural forum, as a commentary, a moment or a responsibility to comment on what is going on, not only with COVID, but also with the Black Lives Matter protests. And it was fascinating to me to see the show go from episode one, which was a really clunky like sitcom about these five friends in LA um, who were just trying to go get by during COVID. And it was very sort of upbeat. And then by episode three, they were like knee deep into Black Lives Matter protests, racial inequality, systemic discrimination, and I was like, this is fascinating. I mean, it didn't necessarily go as deep or was as critical as I would have liked. But for network television, it clearly tried to foster a conversation. It really clearly tried to educate its audience. Uh, so I found that really interesting. And I definitely plan to incorporate it into my teaching next semester. So I do I do think, check it out if you had never heard it before. It's, it's really yeah, it, it tries to grapple with COVID and with Black Lives Matter and everything that happened this summer in a really direct and overt way in this sort of very networky television sense. I also found the voice. Listen, and I'm and listen, and let me also say this up front. Like I am not advocating for anybody watching the voice, um, although <laughs> I'm going to talk about it. But um, but I found the voice and the way that it had to sort of incorporate essentially like what is essentially a weekly concert. Um, and it had to sort of incorporate or to sort of keep pro uh, producing and incorporate some semblance of, of liveness. And what I found really interesting about it was on one hand, the way that it incorporated um, technology like Zoom. So it had like a Zoom wall of people who were watching at home. But like because of my own research, I was super fascinated by the use of things like laugh tracks and applause tracks. And and so as much as we like to think that in this peak TV moment, we're like so smart that we don't need these kinds of audible cues that we sort of went back to that in stuff like The View. And I think that, you know, live sporting events were also using um, this kind of canned content. So I find that really very fascinating that this sort of old school thing that we like to say that we were post, we came right back to it in, in the era of a pandemic. Yeah, I, I think that's super interesting too. And I will say, I was, I'm actually paying a lot of attention to the ways in which advertisements on television have incorporated COVID. Um, and I mean, you know, like the swiftness of the industry that was built around COVID um, wasn't necessarily surprising, but it was still like in the midst of trauma. It was still quite um, stunning to me, you know, not just the mask industry, but but all the different narratives on on advertisements about connecting and using Zoom in commercials, um, you know, in TV commercials, using the, the screen and that kind of thing. But to Al, to your point, um, I think that about kind of going back to this, like immediately going back, again, I had mentioned before, I think I've become quite nostalgic for a particular kind of not just program, but social activity of the social practice of watching television um, since since I, can't, I don't do that. I mean, I do, I do it with my partner, but it's not like uh, you see people having 
television parties or anything. And there's this one show in the UK called um, Gogglebox. I don't know if anyone has ever heard of that, um, where it's just filming families, usually just two people watching television. And it's anything from like, like BBC nature programs to the crown. And they will just be like talk, basically talking shit about the programs to each other or in amazement, or can you believe she's wearing that or, and I love it. It is like, it's ridiculous. I don't even know half the shows that they're watching, but I love the social, the sociality of it. Um, and I don't think that, that that's not, it's, I think it's an old show. I never saw it before, but I wasn't really watching TV before the pandemic in the UK. And so, so but I don't think it's an old show. It's, so it's not a reboot within a pandemic, but it really effectively engages, I think, in a, in a moment where people aren't watching television socially in the same kind of way. So if I could just jump in and pick up on something that uh, that Sarah was talking about, um, part of what I found in doing the research on my second book, which I'm actually doing a work on fans of the, or Black fans of the Golden Girls, is that many folks, um, I actually happened to do it during the pandemic, and uh, many of the Black folks I talked to, I think I interviewed about 30-ish Black folks about their fandom of Golden Girls. And so many of them were talking about, in this pandemic, going back to Golden Girls because like, they knew exactly what Rose was going to do. And they knew exactly that everybody was going to make it out alive. And like, even though you know, Rose had a, uh, an HIV scare, like everybody knew that was going to be all right. And so there's a way that part of what has happened in the pandemic is this kind of um, moreness of media. And, and we saw sort of the information dump from um, like places like Disney Plus. But at the same time, um, you know, a lot of folks have been like, I just want the old stuff. And so in some ways, it's also picked up on this on this nostalgia trend that we've sort of that we saw from before. And I think I saw someone in our industry post that the Saved by the Bell reboot was like one of their favorite shows of 2020. So um, so there's a way that like nostalgia, I would argue more than it perhaps was before, has really played into this um, this pandemic moment. Yeah. And I wonder if maybe there's part of that that speaks to the fact that we were in the middle of this election cycle. Uh, and uh, and in the midst of a pandemic and in the midst of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of going to a much broader, more global scale and really, really permeating this conversation, that at the same time, there's this desire for normalcy or a return, that nostalgia TV that I think in these this series of podcasts, there's been a lot of really wonderful conversations about. Um, and so I'm, I'm intrigued by this project, Al, that you're working on and also doing it at a moment of why now? You know, why is it that we're finding comfort or why is it that at this moment we're trying to do, you know, revivals or online revivals of things that we already know to raise money for organizations that we want to support? So I will bring up the election for a minute, because as we think about the economics of this year, uh, you know, we're looking at massive numbers of people, which is ultimately not that surprising that the number of viewers that Fox News was getting, MSNBC was getting, even CNN was getting this year were higher than they were a year ago. So how do we think about the economics of television? And when we think about that, especially with Fox kind of splitting off last year, how are we thinking about the economics of TV as fictional content versus all of these other things that are on TV and the economics that are driving this, these other parts of our industry. And obviously, of course, we can think about the economics of commercials, which uh, uh, Sarah brought up, and there's so much to cover there in terms of how um, representation is changing on, on commercials as well this year. So lots of different questions. I don't know where people want to head with that. I mean, one of the interesting things to me is I think we're all talking about des desire for rhythms and consistency and um, comfort. And to me, I know that a personal crisis 
crisis, quote unquote, uh, that I had in my TV viewing was I love the old broadcast 22 episode season model, right? I love the cycle of the comfort of getting to know the characters and live with them and all of that. And I feel like I've run out of those shows <laughs> that I want to find because the networks aren't really making them anymore or they're making them less and less and less, right? Because the economics are not conducive to that model, even with broadcasting, right? As they shift to more live events, news, unscripted, that sort of thing. And I do wonder what, you know, obviously there's the labor ramifications for that in terms of people not getting compensated on a regular basis in the ways that they used to. But I also wonder if there will be a moment where someone will say, we want to continue or the economics can be good for this because people want that continuity and consistency for these types of shows besides CBS, maybe, <laughs> who keeps plugging along. I don't know if others have thoughts about that at all. I, um, I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so first of all, I agree with the comfort that um, the sort of regularly scheduled release of episode brings. And I think that's why I started watching old network shows that had extremely long runs like Person of Interest, um, because I knew there were there was like a whole world that I could immerse myself into for like a month and a half. And it was also very predictable, right? So there was no sort of surprises. And so I would often mix in like binging person of interest with newer, with like Lovecraft Country, which I knew would be not as comforting. But I also find fascinating is that Nielsen recently announced that they're going to bundle all their viewing members into just one platform. So it's, they're no longer going to differentiate between, you know, linear television viewing and streaming. And so uh, even though that's only kicking in in two years, I feel like that's a sign that maybe we're very close to network TV also releasing episodes simultaneously onto linear distribution and on their on-demand platforms so streaming. So that's something that I find really fascinating as well. The network TV, which had held on to its model for such a long time, both in terms of the financing through advertisement and also in its sort of narrative patterns, seems to be on this cusp of really radical change. And so I, that's definitely one thing that I'll keep my eye on. I noticed, I mean, I, I've been in the UK for the election until just a week ago, right? And so, um, of course, I was keeping up with it, um, but it was a sort of slightly different scene on television in the UK. And one of the things that they, and it's also a slightly different television model, although it's, you know, it is is closer than I think many people uh, want to admit to the United States. But one of the things is that Boris Johnson, the prime minister, gives these scheduled press conferences where, you know, he just changes his mind every every couple of weeks and, and decides to do some, make a U-turn, the U-turn, the pivot, the, all the different things, right? Um, and he's almost always late for them. It's all, he's always, it's just like broadcast everywhere. Johnson's going to speak and he's going to tell us what the new restrictions are at 5 p.m. on a Sunday, even though the uh, the other news has already kind of leaked what the restrictions are, there's this kind of waiting for the prime minister to definitively say, you are in tier three, you are in tier four, you cannot mingle, you know, this kind of thing. And so it is, that, you know, and I'm sure people have talked about this, but it's a sort of resentment watching, you know, that like, I don't want to watch this. He's he's clearly, he's now, it, the, the, the one that was kind of spectacular was the, the lockdown, the latest lockdown, where he was an hour and a half late for the press conference. And so, you know, Twitter was blowing up. And the the whole theory was that he, he was an hour and a half late, so he wouldn't have to take questions for very long because everyone knew that there was no way that a prime minister's speech on a pandemic, on a national lockdown, could somehow override the airing of Strictly Come Dancing, which is like a national treasure, right? And sure enough, like two minutes until whatever, seven, he's like, no more questions. And Strictly came on and everyone's like, thank God Strictly is on now. You know, we don't have to listen to him anymore. So there's this very odd, to your question, Miranda, about like watching CNN or watching, you know, um, the news um, combined with all this other like nostalgic watching or comfort watching or whatever it is. It's it's not hate watching. It's like resentment watching. Right. Like resentment that we have to wait for these completely incompetent leaders to tell us what we have to do with our lives and how to organize our everyday practices 
when really what we want to watch is strictly come dancing. Um, and, you know, it, it, this is a very interesting kind of tension in watching, I think, um, during this time. I love it. That's great. Um, I'm interested in thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement in relation to the economics of television, but also really in terms of the impact that it has had uh, and that it is having. I'm curious whether or not you think that there are any initiatives that you've seen this year that you think are moving the dial and making impactful change, either on how we are seeing Black characters or uh, Black storytellers speak um, on television or or tell their stories on television, um, or initiatives that are happening kind of behind the scenes, um, or even responding to audiences. So are there things that you think are impactful or anything that you kind of are saying, calling foul on? <laughs> so, I mean, I would call foul on Netflix. Um, and in particular, well, let, let me let me back up. Um, because, like, I feel like early-ish in the pandemic, there was the, um, and this was actually what partly prompted me to want to study Black Golden Girls fans, um, because I believe it was at the beginning-ish of the pandemic, there was the brouhaha over the Mixed Blessings episode of Golden Girls, which is allegedly a Blackface episode, which, like, spoiler alert, is not a Blackface episode. But anyway... So um, so Hulu in particular sort of pulled the episode because it was offensive and so on and so forth and whatever. But in the wake of that, one of the things that, that Netflix did and is um, still doing as of like last week-ish, it actually has or had rather like this like Black Stories Matter or something. And perhaps it's like be, uh, an algorithm thing, but under TV comedies, like all of my TV comedies were um, were black cast um, TV comedies, and I would also add that part of what Netflix also did was they um, they picked up uh, for the streaming rights to a number of black cast sitcoms, so Moesha, One on One, Girlfriends, etc. And while of course a lot of folks were happy about it um, until they actually rewatched Moesha and then they dragged Moesha across the Twitter sphere um, because Moesha, what, like Moesha, the character is trash. But like what was fascinating about it to me was that it, we, they were picking up all of this old content and this old content that most of it was sitting, like nobody was like checking for one-on-one. So, like, nobody was actually trying to buy the broadcast, I'm sorry, the syndication rights for it. So this stuff was reasonably inexpensive. Um, and a friend of mine who used to um, write for Moesha said he literally got a check for $200. So, like, so this stuff is not that expensive to acquire. And so it is, you know, to, it felt very, to sort of borrow from Kristen Warner, it felt very plastic. And the the kind of approach that these corporations are taking to sort of Black Lives Matter has been largely a kind of plastic gesturing toward it. Um, at the same time, I do think like one of the, and this didn't happen during the pandemic, but um, one of the moments that I felt was sort of the, the blackest moment um, that I had ever seen on television was really in uh, toward the end of an episode of Blackish in the wake of Trump's election. And uh, Dre does this whole speech about sort of Black folks' uh, engagement with American politics and the fact that like Black folks repeatedly, and as we saw again, like Black women like save the fucking world every time and save us from ourselves. But like Black folks always generally show up and sort of do their civic duty even as Black folks generally expect the system not to work for them. And so the system generally, like generally, we don't expect the system to work for us. And I would argue that by extension, we don't expect the TV system to work for us either. And so we, we in some ways, we get to hire all of these, um, all of these Black producers, but like generally the Black money is like, or the Black producers being hired are generally in the same pot. So it's like, you know, God bless them. It's Kenya Barris doing like 
another sort of iteration of blackish and God bless them, make your money all day, sir. But it's like, there's no other voices other than, you know, Kenya Barris and Shonda Rhimes. And so there's a way that there's a proliferation. Oh, and we can also add um, Lena, Lena Rape. Um, and so there's the, a way that it gets very circular and we feel in some ways like we're getting more black content, but it's like, and I'm exaggerating, of course, but it's like three people producing the black content and Shonda Rhimes stuff is not really black. Oh, good Lord. And Tyler Perry. But like, God, listen, also, listen, God bless Tyler Perry. God bless him. The other one I would call foul on, I think, or the other practice um, that I noticed and I was asked about a lot was like, especially with Disney and Melanie, I don't have Disney Plus, so I don't know if these are if this actually happened, but with all these like live productions of things like Aladdin, um, I don't know what else was a live production, but there was like, the, or, or showing the original movie of Aladdin, there's now a caveat, like we know this is racist, period. So that's apparently like that is enough, you know, to uh, kind of a kind of contextualization and um, explanation for the racism and the racist characters in those Disney things. And, and also, obviously, Netflix did this other thing where they wanted to where they took things out of their library. Right. So, you know, they're not going to they're not going to air Gone with the Wind or whatever. So this kind of removal slash. Uh, justification or an excuse for a different historical period, you know, that things were different then, you know, that kind of when obviously they're not. Uh, so those just kind of, for me, those, that, that is about branding, right? That is about branding black politics as, as part of your corporation. It's about, it's the same sort of impulse and effort that I would see when I would open up my Chase bank account during, um, you know, after George Floyd was murdered and it said, we care about black people, you know, I mean, and that, and then, you know, just like a banner thing, you know, so it's this very, it's about representational politics. It's not about structural politics. It's about recognizing about, you know, kind of visibilities um, and saying, you know, this is not really our fault because it was a different time and that sort of thing. So it's really works at the level of visibility and representation and not, at any kind of, you know, for me anyway, a, a level of actually making effort for social justice or just or structural change. And of course, it's also very American, right? Like the American way is to, like in the wake of Obama being elected, we were just like, and racism's over. Like we didn't do any work, but we just declared that it's over. And so by removing Gone with the Wind, and I find it also really, really fascinating that nobody has said a peep about the jazz singer. Yeah. Like the jazz singer, like is still running around unscathed and like we're grabbing, like, and we're like, we're taking certain things out of, out of circulation, but nobody said anything about the jazz singer. But in sort of extracting this stuff, um, we sort of extract it and try to disappear it as if it never happened. And that's what's, that's what's really, I think, very fascinating about it because in disappearing this stuff, we just actually keep, like we keep repeating the cycle. Um, and that's what, that, that's what is really ickily American about, about this moment. I think one of the things just to move from the in front of the camera, the creative side to the, the organizational side that's been interesting to watch this year is the confluence of Me Too and <laughs> the racial politics and the extreme white ma maleness of the, the entire managerial chain of all of the companies still, right? Which is very obvious and blatant. And there've been some good articles. Someone did, I think Richard Rushville did a, uh, photo display of all of the management chains of all of the corporations. And it was just like, not surprising. And it's changed a little this year, mainly because so many horrible behaviors by so many horrible people have led them to be um, booted out. And the, to save face, the companies will often, I mean, I want to believe that it's a more equitable and fair mode of appointing diverse people. But whatever the case may be. But anyway, Hollywood Reporter did a piece a couple of days ago talking about how all the sort of organizational changes due to streaming and ownership changes and racial and uh, 
gendered controversies and all sorts of things have opened this door for sort of middle management women and people of color at the uh, TV companies. But then I saw, as someone on Twitter snarkily put it, and yet uh, Disney replaced one Bob with another and one Alan with another <laughs> when you get to the top of the food chain. And so again, it's sort of like same story, different tune kind of thing that we're seeing to a certain extent. I mean, and then, of course, there's also the old adage that um, that companies tend to bring in diverse folks when the shit's going down so that then the like the failure gets blamed on the diverse bodies. So we'll see. We'll see how that shakes out. I mean, to your to your point, Elisa, I'm writing an article right now about the fact that in one year in the middle of the Me Too movement, we had um, three very kind of critically acclaimed programs, The Morning Show unbelievable and I may destroy you um, and and what what that kind of visibility of those of those three programs um, coming out during this kind of me too moment and and also being about the media industries you know Arabella and I may destroy you is a you know a writer um, a morning show is about a morning show on TV unbelievable not as much but anyway so it's it's really interesting I mean I think they, that actually each of them do something really important and each of them have their kind of limitations but it is it is one of those things where you can see how television programming is tapping into um, a, a kind of the, this a general uh, ethos or environment about gender and and racial justice, um, and what then they do with it is is of course always the question. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it feels like we're like at another like a return to relevance in some ways, and I mean, and in some ways, we see like that the the turn to relevance was real shallow in terms of how it dealt with these kinds of um, ideas and ideals around difference. On one hand, like 1.3% of myself that's an optimist is like, it's going to be different this time. The other like 99.7% is like, or no, 98.7% is like, no, ma'am, like this is going to be the same thing over and over yeah, and if the voices of people who are now coming into this industry are coming into an industry that has been shattered by COVID, that has all of these new rules, uh, at a moment of crisis, it is, it's not an ideal situation. It's um, precisely in those same models of, you know, Obama coming in in the middle of a terrible economic crisis and trying to fix everything, right? The expectations of what these shows could do or these makers could do is um, is so high and there's so much hope that it would be almost impossible for them to succeed in many ways. Um, all of you in different ways study economics of the industry, but really from, you know, how production is working to um, distribution uh, to kind of relationships of exhibition and thinking about kind of cultures of production in the media industries and all sorts of broad and brilliant ways. I'm curious for each of you how your research has been going since the pandemic began. Uh, how have you reimagined either the projects that you're doing uh, or how you access the people that you want to do research about? Um, you know, whether or not you've been locked out of the archives that you tend to head to. And I can hear you all politely chuckling uh, because <laughs> this is a real big question. Um, you know, at a moment of crisis, we are being forced to kind of reimagine how we do what we do in all sorts of ways. So I wanted to think, uh, ask each of you, maybe Melanie, could you start and talk a little bit about your research? Sure. So over the past few years, I've spent a lot of time researching San Diego Comic-Con which obviously did not take place this year uh, since you couldn't bring 120,000 people to San Diego. And I've also recently really focused on experiential marketing, which is in-person experiences that elevate brands, also not happening. So um, yeah, this has uh, thrown a wrench into my research, but hopefully we can return to Comic-Con at some point. But this year, there have been a lot of virtual iterations of these conventions, which were received in different ways. And um, San Diego Comic-Con at home 
the industry press pretty much trashed, but fans really loved. And I think the industry was disappointed in that there was not the generation of hype that they get out of the in-person event versus fans just congregated around the event for four days and were very nostalgic about San Diego and the convention center and their own memories of the convention and the connections with their friends, which again also showed how differently fans and the industry think about Comic-Con or these sort of in-person events in general. And then with experiential marketing, I was very curious to see where it would go because you cannot, so much about the discourse of experiential marketing is about the the, the importance of the in-person experience and you just cannot transport it into a virtual realm. And so I was very, I was not surprised that one of the most sort of innovative agencies, um, Giant Spoon, managed to pull off an in-person experience for the finale of Lovecraft Country, where they did a drive-in in LA that was COVID compliant, but also sort of was in the spirit of the show because it, you know, the drive-in experience could have taken place at the time that Lovecraft Country takes place. And um, so then I've, I've seen more agencies do sort of hybrid online and in-person, very sort of either drive-in experiences or it, like one person at a time experiences. Um, and so I've been kind of, that I, I've been kind of following that. Um, but I guess my my main focus, my main research is kind of on hold because if you study San Diego Comic-Con and it's not really happening in the way it's usually happening, yeah, it's not, I'm sort of, I'm doing my best, but it's, I guess there's a little pause button and I'm doing other things instead. So I was finishing my book on Hollywood and the American comic book industry with my co-author Greg Steirer. And I had to write the conclusion when COVID hit and I was like, oof, uh, <laughs> what do I even do? How do I frame this? So studying that industry of the intersection of film, TV and comics has been interesting because, you know, if anyone paid attention to the Disney investors talk last week, it's just it's exhausting. <laughs> and I'm really glad that I put 2019 as my endpoint for my study for about 800 <laughs> reasons. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think, you know, that what you see is this sort of, that's another, to harken back to what we talked about earlier, way that you see familiarity, nostalgia, pre pre-sold properties, established IP. I mean, there's economic reasons for that, but it intersects really well with like the comfort factor of all things in the Marvel universe or the DC universe or what have you. Um, so that that's one thing. The other thing that's just been interesting, and this is sort of teaching oriented, but related to my research is I I, for my, I teach a business of Hollywood class each fall where I have industry speakers come in and usually they come in in, in person, uh, but obviously this fall they zoomed in and uh, what was fascinating was, and it's a range of people from like writers and producers to financiers and distributors and whatnot. And uh, every one of them, I try to ask them how COVID was impacting what they were doing. And they were super grumpy, pretty uniformly across the board and didn't want to talk about it. Uh, and I'm sure that you are just sick of it. Uh, they are sick of it. And so, you know, most of them would be like, yeah, the workflow process changed, the budgets went up, it's more of a pain in the butt. You know, that was sort of like the mantra, let's talk about something more interesting that I do and all the things I'm working on. Um, but I do think it, it, you know, to me, one thing that I've been thinking about more and I'm not sure what I'll do with it is just the way that sp spatial relations and um, production dynamics are changing because I increasingly know people who had moved out of LA, who did production work, who are now able to work on Hollywood projects. And maybe this will be a short-term thing, maybe it'll be long-term, but for the networks, for major companies, because they don't have to be there anymore. And so the way that that will impact who's making what and where, I'm really fascinated by. So for me, two things that have sort of come out of my research profile during COVID have always in some ways been sort of dancing out there, but COVID actually gave me a way into them. So one is, of course, um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm talking to Black Golden Girls fans. And then the second is that I decided to do um, an interview with 
five of my best friends, like we've been best friends for uh, 30 years. Wait, do I mean that? Yes, 30 years. And we like the only we love lots of things in small groups, but the only thing that we all love together is the whiz. And so, um, so I actually decided to do a group interview with them for this book I'm doing on fandom. So that's actually been kind of lovely. Um, and I would also say that to do the interviews um, with black fans on Golden Girls, I think was a lot easier because like people were working from home. So they could like take 45 minutes to talk to me about Golden Girls in the middle of the day versus like me having to wait until, you know, 11 o'clock, you know, here in Iowa City to talk to someone in L.A. at nine o'clock, you know, when they're off work. Um, so that's also been um, been kind of interesting and strange. And then also for me, it seems like um, and I've only I've only talked to three sort of people in the industry since the lockdown. But it has seemed like, at least with two of them, that they just seem more open because I feel like perhaps time is a little more available. And then I was able to use one of them to, like they were friends with Jennifer Lewis. So I got to talk to Jennifer Lewis about um, Jackie's back. I'm also, let me also say this. I think in my own research, I'm reverting to like researching shit I love instead of like things that I find wholly problematic. Um, so in some ways I'm finding joy in the, in the object, even if I'm critical about the thing that I love, instead of sort of coming from a place of this thing sucks and I'm going to tell you why. It's like, I love this thing, but like, here's some stuff that is kind of strange about it. Um, and so I've, in some ways, I've inverted my sort of my approach to my own research in some ways. Well, I really wish that I had talked to you, Al, like before this year, because I am researching all that shit that makes me angry. <laughs> and and I <laughs> promised myself after writing a book that was about misogyny that I was going to do something that was at least a little bit more, you know, hopeful and easier, like easier on my mental health to research. But it turns out, I th by the way, I love this question, Miranda, because I've I've had to, I, I've been asked from the administration at my university, you know, a lot like how do my, cause I'm the head of department, how do my colleagues, how are they dealing with work-life balance? How am I dealing with that? I've, I've thought about it a lot in these sort of more abstracted uh, kind of logistic ways. How are we, do we have the mental space or the, or the capabilities or the, you know, to, to do research, but to actually think about how this moment impacts the kind of research that we're doing is super interesting. So I'll just say, Mine, a couple of things. One is, is that, again, you know, I, I have been focusing on things that have enraged me um, in this moment. And so I'm working on I'm working on a book on believability um, and, you know, in the kind of post Me Too era um, and what the, you know, the kind of labor of believability and actually what I'm kind of taking from some work I did before on the economy of visibility to talk about economies of believability. When is it, um, when, when, when are women believed um, and why, how does, you know, the, like from, from anything from the, you know, kind of memification of Karen, of the Karen, and, but also the, the, the actual, the racism involved in that act of being, you know, so how is it the burden of the kind of unbelievably, un unbelievability of womanhood is layered onto the believability of whiteness. So the one time that women are believed in, you know, in terms of sexual assault is when they accuse, when a white woman ac accuses a black man, you know, that kind of thing. And looking at how that has been circulating in culture during this time has been really interesting. And, and I'm also talking about it within the context of the post-truth in a, in a context of, of like of misinformation and disinformation um, that we deal with all the time in, in such sort of accelerated and amplified ways um, during the pandemic. And part of that is also I'm looking at this kind of um, prominence of white powerful men claiming themselves to be victims um, and what how that how that move you know to to be to kind of occupy the position of being a victim has seems just seems so easy that Trump you know just last week says at a at a speech you know we are all victims here where are the victims you know so so that's that's sort of the con the sort of the theoretical content or the what I'm interested in the other thing I will say is that 
I have gone back to a different method. I, like I said, I'm, I'm writing a article on three television programs. I haven't actually, I, I feel super rusty. It's like textual analysis. What <laughs> is that? You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I, it's been a long time, but I actually had the time to watch these three series over and over again, you know, so that was absolutely, I think, uh, uh, you know, that, that I was, uh, you know, kind of enabled to do that because of the pandemic. So, so it's both method and theory has, has kind of reflected on this moment. Sarah, I, I, it's so funny that you say what you said, because I'm actually, I, I watched something recently that I loved so much that it made me think about going back to textual analysis um, and saying, I don't know what I want to say about this, but I want to say something about it. I've been watching this K-drama Itaewon class, and I'm I'm kind of obsessed with it. I can't stop thinking about all of the different dynamics of this series and the different ways that I can talk about uh, race and class and power and love, um, transnational media, uh, transgender characters, and uh, why am I so in love with this show? So um, I'm curious what all of you are watching that you want to bring into the classroom or into your research. If there's anything that's make you know you're excited that you've watched in the last uh, year 2020 that you can't wait to bring in next semester or next term? So the next time I teach um, TV um, or if I ever teach a reality television show. Um, so actually, so I was, and this is, thank you for this question because I had actually forgotten that I had been watching this show, but I fucking love it. It's on HBO Max. It's called, it's, it's technically, it's, it's supposed to be hot dog, so like high fashion dog, but it, they say it like it's hot dog. It is so, listen, I don't have a pet. I've never had a pet. The only thing living in my house is me and my husband, but like I check for hot dogs so hard. And like I can, like you can see the twists and the turns coming a mile away. And yet like at episode three, I was still a puddle of tears. <laughs> Yeah, so like I love hot dogs so much. <laughs> love it. Uh, Elisa? I, so I do a show that I walk students through a whole season in my TV criticism class and we approach it from a variety of different angles. And I've like been sitting obsessing about what show I'll do because I just, I did Orphan Black for several years and it went really well. But um, I keep going back to the good fight and mentioning that, but then I mention it to my students and they're like, what now is that? What, why would we watch that? Because we're over, we're, you know, or rather, we're under 25, so we don't care about that, <laughs> which kind of makes me want to insert it on their lives even more. But <laughs> I don't know if anyone else watches a good fight, but I'm obsessed with it perpetually. Melanie? Well, I already gave my plug for Connecting, which is the show that I will bring into the classroom next semester for sure. But for me personally, the text that had the biggest influence on me was actually a playthrough of a video game called The Last of Us Part Two, which was just the most amazing, not only probably this year, but in a few years, like media experience I've had because it satisfied sort of every single beat that I look for in a media text that had a queer main character. Um, she had a romantic relationship that was really well portrayed. It had action, it had deep commentary on the world. And I had never really gotten into gaming aside from like playing, you know, Super Mario 15 years ago. And I kind of stumbled into it and I watched this playthrough, which, you know, is like 50 hours or something. And I've watched it twice since I first watched it in July when just, when the game came out. And just the, the experience of watching somebody play through a video game was, was this radically new watching experience. And since then, I've watched a number of video game playthroughs. And I've developed this interest into gaming. And so that was, that was a really big surprise because if you had asked me at the beginning of the year... Like, are you going to be interested in video games? I always said, no, like, why would I? But The Last of Us Part Two really opened up this like world of narrative that I had not anticipated. And it was just a profoundly, like a profound experience for me. For me, it has to be recipe for seduction. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, it, it needs no explanation. 
I think that for me, I would probably do, you know, I probably will move and work into my teaching those three shows that I talked about in terms of being produced and aired in the, in the, in a me too movement, movement, moment, sorry. Um, I probably will do something with Emily in Paris Hmm. just, you know, as a kind of, you know, because it was, because it was Darren star, because it was billed as the next sex in the city, because it, it really isn't that, um, what it is, I'm still not sure about, um, but I will, you know, I teach classes on popular feminism, right? And she is like girl empowered. So, you know, on the streets of Paris. So, um, uh, so, you know, I'm sorry, mine are so much, this is why I probably don't teach television because I'd have to say, let's, you know, let's watch Emily in Paris or all the rest of you. Well, maybe hot dog. Okay, that's, you know, that's not, maybe not like, you know, <laughs> something that can get them to dig into this stuff. But anyway, I want to ask really quickly and maybe if only just one or two of you want to reply, but, but to me, it seems hard to have a conversation about the economics of television without thinking about the economics of television studies and how greatly our field has been impacted. And I'm just curious if you have thoughts as we think about the future of our field of television studies, media studies, film and TV studies as a broader area. And how do we each want to kind of speak to different aspects of how the economics of our industry are shifting and changing? And maybe if each of you wants to say one thing that we all might want to think about or have a conversation about in the, you know, in the, in the coming weeks and months, about where we're going and the economics of academia. I, I leave it open for another podcast. Soon <laughs> 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 to come on your next episode. <laughs> I'll leave it there, I guess, unless anyone wants to. I, I think what's, like for TV studies, and I would argue for media studies, One of the things that actually has been really lovely for me to see during, I think in some ways during this pandemic, has been that I've seen a lot of media outlets actually start to interview us for for their stories. And so in some ways that spoke to me as perhaps a way that we are beginning to make ourselves and our expertise legible. And I would argue as we are in some ways moving away from sort of straight analysis of like the texts in front of us, um, which I think is part of what makes us really like great and special um, because everybody with a computer can actually like look at a text and tell us what they think about it. Um, And so what we've actually been doing for years is talking about all the other stuff around the text in addition to the text. And it started to become legible to, you know, the NPRs and the New York Times is of the world. And that's been lovely to see a lot of our colleagues um, speaking with authority in these kinds of um, outlets and venues. So like that's like I think that's our charge is to. On one hand, as as Kristen Warner says, we need to take our shit back. Um, at the same time that we take our shit back, we have to make sure that we're um, we're saying like we've got degrees in this shit, so we know this better than anybody, and so we can actually talk about it. Hundred percent agree. Yes. The only thing I will say is that the perfect example of this, since I've already brought up Emily in Paris, is that New Yorker article that that called Emily in Paris ambient TV and did not mention Anna McCarthy, who wrote a book with the exact same title. Right. And so there's still ways. But 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 the, I think what was what was interesting about that was that there was a there really was a pushback in a, in a kind of moment of the decline of the expert and, you know, pessimism about expertise. This moment has really brought to the fore things like we've all been talking about production issues, representation, um, practices of watching, you know, all that. So that that should be our charge to to, to exactly like Kristen says it, you know, like take that shit back. This is where we are experts. I'll just say agree. (laughs) It's a great question, Miranda. I I feel like there's so many things I want to say that I'll just say that. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've all agreed this is going to be another episode down down the road yeah. <laughs> for yeah. for a whole other group of people to have to take on. So, um, I I really want to thank you all for speaking to these important, fascinating, playful ideas and issues that you've brought up. Um, so once again, Sarah Benet Weiser, Melanie Conan, Al Martin, and Elisa Perrin. Thank you for your willingness to chat today. I learned so much listening to you and I, and I had to try to hold back my laughter as I looked at the screen um, and really just enjoy what you were saying. Um, on behalf of the co-organizers for this podcast, Brandy Monk-Payton, Lynn Joyrich, and Hunter Hargraves, I also want to thank our sponsors, SCMS, Media the Malcolm S. Forbes Center for Culture and Media Studies at Brown University, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. Many kudos also go out to the extraordinary Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick for all of their help with recording. Oh, did I hear clapping? Yes, please, let's clap. <laughs> Um, and Todd Thompson for providing the music and editing expertise for this series. Um, I'm going to pause again, too, because Lynn, Hunter, Brandy, what you have created here, the community that you've brought together as I think about this, this field, the connections that... Uh, professors and graduate students and undergrad students have been able to have with each other through Zoom conferences and through this podcast and through all of these different kind of digital technologies that we study, you have brought us closer together and we've learned so much from the conversations that you have you know, given to us. So um, onward to our next episode, which will be on the topic of optics. How does television seek to manage social and political crises around the world? How does television manage its own internal crises of representation, of legitimization, etc., in such a precarious cultural moment and climate of unrest? What do calls for combating structural racism in the industry make possible, and what might they foreclose or obscure? And what exactly will be the future image of television? We are very much interested in hearing your thoughts about the most important and interesting issues for this topic. So please send in your questions and thoughts via email at talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com, on Twitter with the hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, or on Facebook, join the Acomedia Facebook group and then post those questions. I'm Miranda Banks with Talking Television in a Time of Crisis, and thanks so much for listening. Please be well, stay healthy, and please, please wear a mask.